0: i'm steve mcleod and this is bootstrapped it's a podcast for people running bootstrapped software companies or wanting to run one i run two bootstrapped software products feature upvote which lets your customers vote on ideas to improve your product And Sabre Feedback, which offers a feedback widget you can add to your website. Follow along as I learn from talking to other bootstrappers and experts. And just maybe you'll learn something too. Joining me today is Kevin McArdle, founder and CEO of Shoreswift Capital. Welcome, Kevin.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: I'm going to read aloud the tagline of Shoreswift Capital, Listeners, as soon as you hear this tagline, you will understand why I've invited Kevin to the show. And that tagline is, Dream Exits for Bootstrapped SaaS Founders. Kevin, as soon as I read that, I was hooked. Tell us about Shoreswift Capital (laughs) and how it can offer these Dream Exits.
1: Well, Shoreswift was founded a little over five years ago with the vision to acquire profitable internet-based businesses. And through a couple of pivots, we've started to focus on bootstrap SaaS businesses, given the wonderful economics of SaaS that you and your listeners will know. And the, the way that bootstrappers build businesses are the exact types of businesses that we want to buy. They're capital efficient, they're profitable, they are once they find us, they're 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 built the right ways, not built with you know paid traffic as the main acquisition channel not overstaffed and overinflated with unnecessary people. So that's that's why we found our niche and we we say dream exits because you know, we know how hard and stressful a time it is when somebody's looking to sell a business and we through I think we've acquired 37 or 38 businesses in 5 years. We've learned how to make that process as stress-free as possible and to make it a great experience for the founder who's selling us a business.
0: That's almost 40 businesses now. That's like one a month. That's actually more than I realized. How do you manage to juggle them all? Well,
1: I've got a wonderful team and not all of those businesses are still with us. So we we definitely have a buy and hold approach. We like to buy a business that we want to own forever. And there have been a couple of businesses, uh, a handful that we've sold because they were just too small or not really impactful to the portfolio or didn't work out the way we want. And they are better off with a different owner. So we we've acquired 37 businesses. We actually aren't actively operating 37. The, the That number is closer to 30 because we've sold some businesses that were some of the smaller ones that we acquired very early days, or they weren't impactful to the portfolio, but even, you know, Operating more than one business is difficult. Uh, so thirty is certainly difficult. And you know, Steve, from managing the two businesses that you're running, you know, when you're operating more than one thing, you you have to think differently. You know, have to have a, a different set of team members and just look at it as a as a portfolio. So you know, I'm fortunate to have you know almost eighty people around the world helping me make this go. And you know, they worry about the day to day of each portfolio company so that I can. Worry about SureSwift itself.
0: Um, good answer. So the ones that you sold off were they particularly not SaaS, not B two B SaaS businesses?
1: That's right. Early days of SureSwift, because we were targeting you know simply profitable internet based businesses. The first several businesses we purchased were content sites that made money through advertising, and so in early days we were writing very small checks. And so you know content is great. It can be very profitable. It can be very volatile. But you know, because our focus is now on SaaS and because these were smaller businesses, we decided better to sell those off, put them in the hands of somebody who can do better with them going forward so that we can narrow our focus to SaaS.
0: Another great answer. So... I won't go any further into the background of Shore Swift Capital for this interview, because I think there are other places you've talked about it brilliantly. And I will point listeners particularly to a podcast called Escape Velocity, the hostess Dan Martell, episode 33. Kevin went into great detail about how Shore Swift Capital runs. It was actually a fascinating conversation. But what I want to focus on in this interview is the more practical information for listeners who like the idea of a dream exit. So let's go along those lines.
1: Sounds good. Thank you, Steve, for the, the compliment on Dan's interview. Dan's become a friend and an investor in SureSwift, And it's funny, we, we actually recorded that almost a year ago. It was October of 2019. So I was surprised when it uh, just came out. Uh, I think it was last month, but all the all the details of the background still apply.
0: Wow, that's um, a long pipeline that Dan has for podcast episodes. Some usually like going from week to week. and
1: I know. Yeah, well, you know, I have, I've got a little podcast about just the, the technology scene in, in my hometown of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and we're the same way. It's like every, every two weeks. But if, if your listeners know anything about Dan Martell, he is a content machine. So it's no surprise that he's got a, a long pipeline.
0: I could learn something from him. Great. Hey, so, Kevin, as you know, I've got two businesses, two, two mm-hmm. SaaS products. Let's say we're sometime in the future and I've decided I'm ready for one of those to be acquired and you and I have talked about it sort of casually and we've come to an agreement, at least verbally, that I want to sell to you and you want to buy from me. Mm -hmm. How does it go from there? How long is the process between that meeting of minds to when I can see the money in my bank account and walk down the street without that load on my shoulders anymore?
1: Yeah, it's a good question Steve. I I would say the process takes as long as it needs to take. To be more specific, we've closed deals once, you know, agreeing on, you know, price and terms could be as, as quick as 2 weeks, and we've had other businesses take 2 or 3 months to close once, you know, we and the seller have agreed on terms. I see some people in the world sort of advertising or marketing We'll give you an answer in X days and close in 30 days. I actually don't think that's necessarily healthy. Having done this a number of times, I know that SureSwift is pretty good at it—sort of making a decision and coming up with terms and and sticking to those. And then we've got a very robust, proven process to transition a business into our ownership in a in a smooth and comfortable way. And I've also learned that. It's a really stressful time for a seller to be selling a business. Even I assume in your case, I know you've acquired a business, that one probably doesn't have the same emotional connection to you as the ones that you've built. but it's still it's still a big deal. And so I, I don't think rushing the process is in anybody's interest. We take more of a checklist approach of saying, you know these are the things that need to happen in order for the business to be ready to sell. These are the things that need to happen the day we close. And then there's a number of things that need to happen following a close, and we usually like to, you know, sit down with the seller and agree upon what's a timeline that makes sense for everybody, based on, you know, at, at whatever we have going on, whatever you have going on in your life, and just pick a timeline that is comfortable for everybody.
0: This idea that within a couple of weeks or a couple of months I could be walking away from one of my products just—it's mind blowing. I I have a multi-year timeline in my head of where I'm going with it. And it's I'm a kind of like surprised it's actually possible that within a few weeks I could be done with it. It's really, really remarkable to hear that you've got that smooth process going.
1: Well it's it's because we've done it a lot. It's because I've got a, a sizable team and our team is built to acquire other people's successful businesses. I would say, you know, I I don't I don't know that it's a great idea for somebody to just say, I want to be done with this business by the end of the month and set about going going at that pace i imagine if you have a multi-year plan there are reasons that you know places where you want the business to be over that period of time or places where you want to be personally over that period of time but yeah it's quite it's quite possible to you know if you decide to sell a business now time it can be appealing to be able to as you put it walk away from a business in relatively short order and there are a lot of factors that go into like what is that business worth and if you're Really in a hurry to sell it, then that is probably going to raise some questions from the buyer. To be honest, you know, why are you in such a hurry to sell it, and what am I taking on? Uh, And it might um, constrain your options of who is ready to buy that business. But no, it's we're buying assets. The transfer of software from one over to another is pretty straightforward, and you know because we have a lot of experience doing this, there's no reason that the process has to take more than a couple of months at the at the at the longest.
0: So you said that it can be a couple of weeks, it can be a couple of months, depending on how it goes. I assume there are some typical road bumps you, you encounter over again that maybe you know how to handle them, but they're a kind of a surprise to the seller?
1: Yeah. Um, so the biggest road bump that we fortunately haven't encountered a lot, but is, is probably the, the biggest bump in the road for any transaction is any sense of you know, hiding uncomfortable information. I look at any business is going to have challenges or problems or things that aren't perfect, and that's literally true of any business. I can look at SureSwift and recognize there are there are problems that we're not in the in in the uh, market to sell SherSwift, sure but if if we were and somebody wanted to buy the whole portfolio, I, there are things that I would point out to that buyer and say, you know, th- I'm really proud of my business, but there's a couple of things here that you should know so that you're able to handle them. One of the biggest <laughs> bumps in the road that we find is that people actively try to hide those things instead of just being open and honest about them and figure out a way to to handle them together as i said fortunately that has happened very few times but when it does happen it's very disruptive um there's a lot of bumps in the road that just come from the mechanics of handing over a business like for example for some reason even though they've been in business for decades PayPal is just horrible at transferring yeah. from one owner to another sounds like you've had that experience Steve just um, yesterday yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah so sorry for picking a scab there and you know because we buy businesses from all over the world I'm a I'm a big fan of stripe and the, the way that they handle things but transferring a business from we're based in the United States so transferring a business from you know a European Stripe account to a US Stripe account is a little a little more complicated, but like that is the first time we did that, it was like, it felt like a, a bump in the road. Now we just know how to get ahead of it. So you know we've got a, a like several page checklist of things that we have learned through experience to ask a seller. You know what about this? What about this? Tell me, another interesting thing that people might not realize, but just knowing what are all the different accounts and bits of software that help your business go that need to be transferred. On the surface, that seems like pretty straightforward, Steve, right? Like you look at your business credit card, what are all the things that you get charged for every month from like your support desk software to any marketing things or whatever. And if you go down that list, you should be able to find the credentials and give them to, you know, my team and we take them over. But it's shocking how like almost every business we buy, there's something that the seller forgets. Even even the most detailed and you know, thorough uh, documentation. You know, if if you've built a business up over a number of years, there's just small things that get missed. So those are all, as you put it, bumps in the road, not aside from the first one I, I mentioned of people actively trying to hide uh issues. They're just, you know, things that pop up that need to be dealt with. And fortunately we've been through our experience, gotten pretty good at at handling those things and looking out for them in advance instead of letting them surprise everybody.
0: Sounds like you've turned them from road bumps to just steps in the process that are completely predictable. And I guess that's the advantage of doing this over and over again. That's right. Yeah. So what happens after acquiring in the initial weeks or months for the owner? Do they just look at the bank balance, do a little dance of joy, and then go and have an empty calendar for every week and every month ahead?
1: Well, I hope they do a little dance of joy and they, in a normal circumstance, they don't have an empty calendar immediately. So we approach this with what's good for the seller and what's good for the business. And those are not necessarily one and the same. So when we try to structure, you know, we say dream exits in, in, in reality, it, you know, some people might picture a dream exit as I get a pile of money and I don't have to do anything the day after we close the business. That's actually not good for the business itself. And what our smartest sellers realize is you're tied to your business in perpetuity, even after you don't own it. So we were talking before recording about the business you bought from... Is it Mark Beamer?
0: Matt Beerman. Sorry. Oh, gosh. I both... Matt, <laughs> Matt Beamer. That's um, Saber Feedback.
1: Saver Fee. Right. I recently listened to your interview on that deal. Congratulations, by the way. It sounds like a really good transaction for both parties. Thank you. But Matt's name is tied to that business forevermore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now pe- people know you own it now, but he's the guy that built it. So it is in his best interest to make you successful. And I, you know the way I think of it is like the, the smartest sellers know that and they want us to be successful, even if they're not operating their business anymore. And um, you know, often there's a team involved. And so we all want the team to be successful and have a good outcome after we take over a business. So what we typically ask sellers to do is hang with us for a period of time. Like, you know, could be could be three months, it could be, you know, four, five, six. And we say for a period of a few months after the close, we want you to keep doing what you had been doing. So the calendar doesn't just all of a sudden go empty. Uh, you know, in the case of bootstrappers, often sellers there there are times where people are doing everything like I know matt was're we're, we're working with a, a seller right now who has no team. He does support tickets, he writes the code, he does the marketing and so on and so forth. so we need to hire a team to replace that person and even in the case where there is a team hired, if the founder is doing anything it's we have found it's in everybody's best best interest to just keep doing that for a little bit of time, not long, but that helps us to really understand the business, get to know the team, get to know the the processes and procedures so that we can take over gradually and in some many cases hire somebody specifically to replace what the founder has been doing and then you know that period of time you know typically is 2 3 months and then we've got the keys the founder can take their hands off the keyboard and have you know very few if any scheduled meetings maybe just once a week check in with our team help us with strategy help us with things that might come up that didn't come up in the first few months And then, you know, typically after, after six months, we, and then this is all predetermined before the sale. It's not like we, we figure it out as we go, but at the, at the end of a predetermined what we call transition period, then the founder can just sort of, you know, walk away and, and not have any obligations. But we found that it's better to have there be sort of a gradual decline in what the, what the seller is doing so that our team can work up to replacing their, their activity.
0: Sounds smart, and I guess you learned that along the way. How uh, exactly to make that acquisition, post-acquisition process go?
1: That's right. Yeah, all—all all this is learned through experience. Like the first time we were doing it, it was just all just making it up as we go.
0: Glad to hear I'm not the only one. Hey, Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you a quite a selfish question. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's selfish because, as you know, I'm in the the recent months after acquiring a business. What are the common quick wins you look for after acquiring? The types of things you can do to change the business that the seller wasn't able to do?
1: Yeah, that's a good question and um, really depends upon the business. One thing that I don't know enough about the the business you recently acquired to know whether this is a quick win for you, but often in a bootstrap SaaS space, often there are easy ways to delegate some of the things that the founder is doing. So you mentioned Matt did not have a team, you know, and I don't know what the support load is for that business, but I'll I'll use a different example from my experience. So the 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 one I talked about, we're we're about to acquire a business where the founder is doing everything. And it's it's quite a substantial business with lots of recurring revenue and thousands of customers, and yet this founder is still answering support tickets, even as simple as like how do I log on to the software or I forgot my password. You know that's something that you can pay somebody a really reasonable rate to do really really well and free up time. And so this founder just you know he's a super smart guy. He you know was managing his time fine. But the first thing we're going to do is either take somebody from our customer happiness team to go to work on that business or hire somebody specifically to work on that business. Because, you know, we believe that, you know, the right people doing the right jobs. And, you know, in this case, this guy is a talented software developer. He's an expert in the specific business niche that his business is in. And there are certain things that he should be doing. And in my estimate, and he knows this, we've talked openly about this. Uh, you know, answering password resets is not the uh, something that he needs to do. So, you know, we, we talked about this, Steve, just, you know, delegating the right things is usually a quick win. Another one is you're know, just taking fresh eyes at the, the messaging of a business. You know, sometimes, and I, I'm guilty of this too, like you commented on our, our tagline of Dream Exits for Bootstrap Founders. That's evolved over time. We think it resonates with people. And you know, somebody buying our business might take a hard look at that and be like, huh, let's maybe think about how we communicate to customers. So that's something we do with every business is to you know, look at the marketing of the business. There's some simple things to be more, more prescriptive for, for you and your listeners. We go through an SEO checklist every time we acquire a business. We go through a site speed checklist every time we acquire a business. You know, we look at where's the traffic coming from and how can we, you know, augment what's working and stop what's not working. There are often times where we as business owners just continue down a path because it's what we've always done. And so, you know, some of those quick wins, Steve, come from just putting fresh eyes on a business and not just assuming we have to do things the same way that they have always been done because that's how they've been done.
0: Okay. Uh, One does become blind to things around one after a while, whether it's in a business or a house or anything. So, yeah, I like that. Hey, Kevin, in the time we have remaining, I want to do something a bit fun. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the options and possibilities for a bootstrap business to be acquired at four different revenue levels. Sounds good. I guess you're the right person to ask.
1: (laughs) Well, I'll (laughs) certainly have some opinions.
0: So let's start with a business that's doing a revenue monthly of about one thousand dollars to four thousand dollars US. So perhaps it's the classic side project. It's uh, the owner's got to a point where it's earning a bit of money, but realizes running a business is not what they want to be doing and want to turn this revenue stream into a lump sum of cash. How feasible is that at this level of income?
1: Uh, Definitely feasible, and I think at that level of income, there are thousands of people who would like to buy that business and are capable of buying that business. So at that stage and and I think one of the things that I've observed in the 5 years of of running SureSwift is the massive community that communities plural that are are built up around th- this whole ecosystem of running your own business, you know, bootstrapping specifically and the people that know they want to run their own business but either don't have the idea or haven't dedicated the time. And so I think you'd be surprised at how many people would be really excited about buying a business that small and have the financial means to do so. So, and, you know, because it's not a huge business, you probably want to try to sell that yourself, not engage a broker because, you know, a a broker take a lot of brokers wouldn't, you know, uh, put the time in to actively market a business that size, and there are a lot of places you, your listeners, I'm sure, will be familiar with Indie Hackers as a as a great example. Of there are you know thousands of people on that site that want to get into the business of of running something themselves, specifically in SaaS, um, but you, you know don't have the idea, or they tried a couple of things and it hasn't worked, and so acquiring somebody else's thing, you know, you you, you mentioned not a lot of traction, but you know, if you've got paying customers, that's further than a lot yeah. of people have gotten. You know, so like, yeah, that's you're you're almost in the 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 one percent club there of business owners. So yeah, I think yeah, you know, anything that's making money, there are people out there that are they're going to be excited about acquiring it.
0: So I might go to Indie Hackers, make a post saying I have this business, but I want to be done with it. Well, maybe I put it in better words than that. Is uh, <laughs> anybody interested? We can get on the phone and talk about possibilities of you acquiring it
1: that's right uh, okay. you know i mentioned indie, indie hackers is a, is, a, is a forum you know there there are others but you know that's the first place i would go and i you know i'm a fan of twitter mm-hmm. you know just tell the world i have this okay. thing that is is good and for whatever reason i'm ready to hand it over to somebody else who who is going to uh, take ownership of it and um, you know i I've, I've seen in several cases people come out of the woodwork to you know acquire that thing
0: Okay. That's so quite the, the informal approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm quite surprised I didn't realize that it was such a feasible thing. Um, that's that's wonderful news for, I bet, for some of our listeners who are in that place exactly as we're talking. So, let's move up to, say, $10,000 per month revenue, 10 to $20,000. So, now we've got a business that's got real traction, but maybe the owner feels they don't have the skill set or desire to keep it going, or maybe they just want to turn that revenue into something that gives them a lot of certainty in life, you know, pay off their their mortgage or other debts. How feasible is an acquisition at that level and how might one go about it? De- uh,
1: definitely feasible as well. So as you go up the different levels that you're describing, the number of buyers will get fewer. But at this level, there's still, I would estimate, thousands of people that have the financial means uh, and the uh, operational ability to, to take on a business of this size. If you're getting to this level, you might want to look at, are there specific people you want to target to whom you want to sell this business? So at the, at the, you know, the earlier stages, I think you said one to 4,000 in monthly revenue, lots of people can take that on. And it'd be fine. At, at this 10 to $20,000 level, you might want to look at, um, are there, other people in in the marketplace that have related businesses could be a competitor, uh, could be you know a, a comp, somebody with a complementary business, and you know selling to that. Per, it could be a, somebody like a Sher sure that has a you know bigger portfolio. We typically target businesses over twenty k a month, but we have bought businesses in the ten to twenty k range, and for something that is you know outstanding on a lot of other elements, you know, we, we'd certainly look at that. And there are a lot of people like SureSwift where they, they're looking to build a portfolio. And so rolling up a bunch of smaller businesses is a good thing. So a little bit of research, uh, and you can find those, those folks, but there's absolutely a market to, to sell a business of that size as well. Okay. Another option, Steve, if you're not, if you don't have the desire to keep going and operating that business yourself, an option is hire somebody to run it for you. Obviously, that sucks into the profits, but you know, again, there are you know thousands of people out there in the world that would prefer to kind of run their own thing than to be you know a cog in the machine working for the man. Okay. and you know that might have the skills. Of course, it depends on the business, but you know if you've got skills for you know as a product person or a digital marketer or you know, if it's it's super tech heavy if you're, you're a skilled developer that's got business savvy you know somebody you know it, like yourself who maybe wants to move on from a project, but you don't need the the cash, hire somebody to manage that business and you can sort of have the best of both worlds where you don't have to think about it every day if you hire the right person, but you can also still maintain that asset if you want the recurring revenue versus the, the one-time windfall payment.
0: Oh, that's interesting. That's also something I hadn't thought about, and I think that could apply to me in in the in the future, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I could do a whole podcast episode just talking about how to go about that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so moving up to the next level, this is twenty five thousand to fifty thousand dollars revenue per month. As far as I understand, this is the Sure Swift sweet spot.
1: Um well yeah we we like to say north of 20k we're we're interested but we don't put a cap on the size of business that we are interested in um but yes this is this is the type of thing if you're at over 25k a month it's probably a well aged business you know that's got a big customer base you probably have a team operating it and yes this is absolutely our sweet spot and any of your listeners that are in that range that decide that they are ready to go do something else or decide they want that dream exit, then we'd love to talk to them.
0: Okay. And if it's not a B2B SaaS, so, which is not, so it's not in the typical business you acquire, what would be another approach where, where one might be, one might be able to look at for that?
1: Yeah. So uh, there's a couple of things. I don't like to necessarily point out specific brokers or like competitors publicly but if you look for you know at this size it might make sense to engage a broker to help okay. sell your business you know because i mean the fees that the brokers take are quite large in my yeah. opinion yeah you know like you know we're, we're looking at 10 to 15 percent of the sale price going to the broker which is meaningful
0: yeah i was surprised at how high that was when i got a evaluation from a broker last year I, and and there was no negotiation possible i i pushed back and they were like no nah, that's it Unless your business yeah. is selling for more than a million dollars, sorry, but that's the that's the fee.
1: Yeah, it's shocking that that's where the market is. When you look at other, you're just looking out my window, I'm looking at my neighbor's home, like the realtors that sell, you know, very expensive homes, which are you know equally as complex as a as a business. In some ways, more com- the transfer of a home is more complex than buying a business, in my experience. Um, you know, they're getting like three percent, I think. So. Yeah, it might make sense to engage a broker. I think it always makes sense to just sort of do a bit of research yourself. Reach out to a few people that you think might make sense to to buy your business and just gauge their interest. Whether it's SureSwift or somebody else. So you know, if it's not B two B SaaS, we're we're probably not the right buyer for it. Uh, But there are people that you know exclusively buy e commerce companies, and so I think researching that, asking some some people in your network. Uh, who are who are the people that buy e commerce companies and and re- and reach out to them directly because you might save yourself a. Uh a broker commission. Another We've mentioned Indie Hackers, which I'm a, I'm a huge fan of what Cortland and the gang do over at Indie Hackers. Another group that is relatively new to the scene, but I really like what they're doing is called Micro Acquire. Have you heard of them yet? Steve? I
0: haven't. I haven't. Micro Acquire.
1: Micro oh. Acquire. Uh, and I, I mentioned I don't uh, you know, name brokers, but these guys aren't broker. It's a... I'm a click to... Find, yeah. Andrew Gazdecki is the founder. Andrew has had a couple, I don't know him well, but what I know of his story, he's had a couple of business, you know, exits himself. And I got the impression like, you know, good for him financially, but not necessarily the best process in the world. So he created Micro Acquire with the goal of helping business owners have a platform to sell their business without having to go through a broker. And now there are like great brokers in the world that probably earn their 10 to 15% commission. And I know there are people that, are not great actors out there in the world. And it's hard to separate, you know, one from the other. I'm happy to speak to your listeners privately about, you know, some advice on who who I would trust and who I wouldn't. But MicroAcquire is basically a marketplace. You may have heard of Flippa, Steve. Yeah, Yeah, so Flippa, I don't don't have a great impression of. And MicroAcquire is a, a newer, smaller marketplace run by a guy that I have gotten to know and trust. And he just wants founders and sellers to be successful and be a matchmaker. So it's no cost to, to sell your business on micro as far as I understand. So, you know, one should do one's own research, but Andrew's creating a new platform and there's other, I feel like there's other places, bare metrics at one point took a, took a step at helping people to just like, let the world know that they're open to a sale. Uh, So there's a lot of um, change and disruption happening in this space, which I think is all net positive for business owners. Five years ago, when I started this, yeah, I was listening to podcasts of people didn't even realize it was a. It was a thing that you could sell a business, uh, you know, an internet-based business like the ones that you and I operate. I think we've gotten past that, but still like, okay, how does it work? What are the pitfalls? How do you find a buyer? There, those are still like known challenges that people are, are dealing with. But I think the direction is more and more in favor of owners and operators of businesses to you know, make things easier for, for you to sell it to a, a, a good, healthy buyer.
0: Okay. Uh, I will look up the microacquire and put it in the show notes. The, the last revenue level, maybe it's the same answer. Uh, let's say you've got a business doing $100,000 per month or more, probably a dream revenue for most of our listeners, but I do know at least a couple of our listeners who I'm in contact with sometimes are above that level. So let's briefly consider it. How, how would you go about selling? What, how does that type of revenue change things?
1: At that revenue level, I think it's probably the same answer as the last level. There seem to be sort of tranches like, and I'm, I'm going to use annual revenue just for a little bit more simplicity. So like under a million dollars in annual revenue, there's a, gi- a giant pool of buyers. You think you'd be surprised at how many people are capable of buying a business of that size. It's pretty straightforward. Nobody's expecting you to have a, a huge team of people but hopefully a little bit of a team we're probably assuming the founder is still doing some of the operations and it can be a little bit messy to to hand over cuz you know it's just a, a you know a, a small business and that's not small as a negative term like most of the businesses in the world are in that small category and then you get into the range say like 1 to 5 million dollars a year so that's this level where the buyer pool is a little bit smaller I think the expectations are a little bit higher on the professionalization of that business, but it's also understood like this isn't a fortune 100 transaction. You know, you're probably not selling to to Google or Facebook or somebody like that. You're uh, selling to a smaller buyer there's somebody like SureSwift with a portfolio or somebody that has a strategic angle on that business. And so that's kind of how I think of that, you know, $1 to $5 million range. As you get even Bigger, so let's say over five million dollars a year in revenue, which would translate to you know what is that in monthly revenue? Like four hundred thousand dollars a month of revenue. So so way bigger uh, than than what you're describing in this at this level. Then you're talking probably not not just the. Certainly, you want somebody advising you, but probably not even the the, the business brokers that you and I have interacted with at, at the smaller level, Steve. But you know, maybe you engage like a proper investment bank, uh, okay. to help you to to sell that business because there are there are fewer buyers. Those buyers are even more professional, and you know, you want a professional on your side to make sure you don't get taken advantage of and understand the pitfalls of you know the actively selling that business.
0: Okay. So at about 5 million, it becomes quite a per year, it becomes quite a different ball game altogether. Yeah.
1: That seems to be like a tipping point where like just things are different. It's a whole different game with different players. You know, I've talked to some very large companies who acquire software businesses and they're like, well, we just can't, we, we can't make the math work at less than $5 million a year. It won't get the right attention inside our portfolio. There are certain, well, most investment banks in the world won't like look at a deal smaller than 5 million a year. Cause it, you know, they bring a whole team and a, a pretty robust process and their fees, you know, are hard to uh, the, the fee on a $5 million sale is hard for them to justify the, the full workforce that they put on it. So, you know, I, it sounds like most of your listeners are at the less than hundred K range. And so that's where I believe you want to do your research. And fortunately there's a lot of people that have been pretty public. Like I loved your interview with Matt. Cause like, okay, let's talk about the process. Let's talk about your mindset going into this. Like there are a couple of people who have sold businesses to SureSwift who have told the world about the process. Uh, Tyler Tringas is one. Um, Arvid Call just uh, published a book called Zero to Sold that's doing really well. Uh, and he's put a whole lot of content out into the world about his the, his experience with his wife, Danielle, building the business and then the process of deciding to sale, sell and then the, the transaction itself. And so there's a lot of opportunity for people to learn from the experiences of others. Uh, at SureSwift, we're trying to be, through our blog and our newsletter, like as transparent, as public as we can to help people learn from our experience. Um, so kind of back to your earlier question about the timing. If if somebody thinks that it they want to sell their business eventually, and that, that could be in six months, it could be in a year, it could be in three years. It makes sense to start educating yourself now on who are the players in the world? What does the process look like? You know, who are the brokers out there? Are there ones that I might trust to, to sell my business? You know, let me follow micro require and just see how they do things. And, and just, you know, work well in advance to do that research and understand the process and what you can turn what is naturally a uh can be a scary and a stressful process into something that you know feels like operating a business like you plan the work and you work the plan and you the through doing that research and that that preparation it can become less stressful less scary hopefully
0: yeah wise words and really good advice if you think you want to sell one day a year in advance or so you already start talking to people and doing your research. Yeah. Hey, Kevin, that's all we have time for today. So let's wrap things up. Thanks again for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, my pleasure, Steve. It was really, uh, really great to be invited.
0: I've enjoyed this conversation and I've particularly enjoyed learning more about what options lie ahead for me if I'm ready one day for one of my products to be acquired. If mm-hmm. anyone wants to contact you for more conversation about this, what's the best way to do that?
1: Easy. I'm just Kevin at TroswiftCapital.com or, or find me on Twitter. And I love interacting with entrepreneurs in any, any platform and being as helpful as I can.
0: Okay. I think more than most of our guests, you'll probably be contacted by somebody <laughs> <laughs> because there's That's... something very concrete about this.
1: Yeah. No, that's great. I'd, I'd love to hear from your listeners. I'm, I'm a fan of your podcast and I think you, you do good things for the ecosystem. So yeah, reach out to me or if you if you want something a little less passive and just kind of want to stay in touch, you know, sign up for our email list. We call it the Founder Squad and we try to push out whatever we can about the things we've learned and the things we're learning along the
0: way. We will, of course, have all that information linked in the show notes. Okay. I'll be back next week with another episode from the life of a bootstrapper. Bye everybody. That concludes this episode of Bootstrapped. You can discuss this episode and other bootstrapping topics on our forums at discuss.bootstrapped.fm.